Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means shaking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob, and this is the second part of your serious questions about money. It's my money theme week. The book has launched, uh, and I wanted to take this opportunity to allow you to question me on anything regarding money, your circumstances, your situations. And so this is part two of your serious questions about money. Let's get into the questions right now. Can you ever be too rich? And conversely, uh, will you ever have enough money to be satisfied that, you know, you're successful, you're okay, you're happy, you can relax and stop chasing, chasing, chasing? So these are two questions I've recently been posed and proposed on money in my week theme of answering all of your questions, no matter how deep or personal about money. So let's go with the first one. Can you ever be too rich? Well, I think yes and no. I think you can be too rich if you're you're overly unbalanced into greed and you're chasing money exclusively for money at the cost of relationships, health, happiness and balance. And, you know, some people in the world do have millions or billions, but they don't have balance and happiness, etc. Or sustainability because they go really greedy. They make loads of money and then society outs them and overthrows them back the other way. So in that regard, yes, you could be too rich. But, you know, sometimes I think it was Bob Marley who said some people are um, so rich that all they have is money or something to do with that money is the only thing they have that they perceive as being wealthy. I probably butchered that quote, but you get what I mean. I, I remember some people are so poor that all they have is money. So, yes, in that regard, you could be too rich if you're overly focused on greed. But greed and growth are this fine line like insanity and genius where they're so close in that growth is progress, it's evolution. Often your happiness comes from growing and overcoming challenges and problems. Um, It was David J. Lieberman that said the definition of happiness is progress towards a worthy goal and progress is growth. And of course, with growth comes challenges and difficulties and new new lessons and new things to manage and being uncomfortable and feeling scared. So in that regard, I like to to try and balance greed and growth in that make sure I'm not being too greedy and, and I'm not making money for money's sake and chasing money for money's sake. But I'm creating service, value. I'm innovating. I'm improving. I'm solving You know, I'm interacting and engaging with my community. I'm learning more. I'm trying to give more. As the book says, no more, make more, give more. And I think if I'm doing that, then no, you can never be too rich. Um, Because what you'll always be rewarded directly proportionately to the value you give society, your customers, your clients. So in that regard, if you keep giving a lot more value, more, 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 then you will earn more, 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 more. Um, as I've said a few times on this live theme week um, to celebrate the launch of money, uh, inflation will erode the value of your money so that every 15 years it's half its value. 
So you need to grow at least double every 15 years just to stay the same. Because in life, if you're green, you grow, you're ripe, you rot. And nothing in life stays the same. It either grows and flourishes or it decays and it rots. So, you know, as long as we're in balance, no, you can never be too rich. And by the way, the more wealthy you are and the more rich you are, the more you can give away. The more you can support your charities, your causes, the more you can raise great adjusted kids. You know, if you're a creative kind of person, you do video, you know, you do art. Well, money can fuel your video and your art because if you're wealthy, you can have really great equipment. You can go to great locations and make your art better. So money is a spiritual, a spirituality itself because it can fuel and finance spirituality. You know, look at some of the great films, the great art, you know, the great music that you love. That would have cost a huge amount of money, like Michael Jackson's Thriller, the best artists, the best dancers, the best choreographers, obviously him, the best lyricist and melody maker, the best um, film score musicians, you know, Quincy Jones. You know, all they would have cost a huge amount of money to put this amazing team together. And then you get one of the best albums that's ever been written. You know, whether you like it or whether you just measure it on metrics, it's one of the most successful albums ever. So money fuels the art. Money fuels your art. Right, great. By the way, if you've got any questions, if you're live or if you're listening to the podcast and you want to pose them in the Disruptive Entrepreneurs community, fire away. My challenge this week is to do as many videos to answer all the questions you have. If I have loads of questions, I'm doing loads of videos. Um, so, hey, that's my goal for you. All right, let's have a look at this. If everyone was a millionaire or greater, would we still distinguish between the wealthy and the poor? So, um, you know, there's often these questions like if everyone, if it's that easy or if, if you're out there teaching everyone to do it, then surely um, everyone will be doing it and it would be the new normal. Well, I would say, yes, that's correct, if. But the reality is no one's going to be, not not everyone is going to be a millionaire, just like not everyone will be a black belt martial artist, not everyone will be a photographer, not everyone will be an author of a book, not everyone will be a fashion designer, not everyone will be a weatherman, not everyone will be a gardener. Um, Because if if you said, well, if everyone was a millionaire, then things would change. Yeah, they would. But that would therefore um, be incumbent in everything else, that everyone would be everything at everything. And the reason we're not is because we're an independent species. There needs to be a cobbler, a butcher, a farmer, etc. You know, we, need, we, we, we survive and thrive and evolve in an interdependent and self-serving manner. So you balance the selfish and the selfless. The selfish is, you know, like, I'm going to run first out of the fire. Uh, don't worry about those lot. I'm going to save myself. Because if we didn't have that selfish motive to survive then we wouldn't survive. And that's why we have a selfish motive for growth, a selfish motive for greed, a selfish motive for goals, achievement, success, reward, self-adulation, you know, recognition, because we have the selfish driver. We need that otherwise. Yeah, sorry, Karen said, and breathe. We need that. But if we didn't have the selfless, then we wouldn't be able to survive in an interdependent way. So we need the landlord and the tenant. We need the millionaire and the, you know, the janitor or the cleaner or, you know, the, the, the care worker. You know, we need the public sector and the private sector. We need the entrepreneur who creates and then the, the servants, the civil servants who serve. We need them all to have a balanced, evolving society. So whilst, yeah, if everyone was a millionaire, millions would be the new norm. But then what would probably happen is you'd get trillionaires. And so, the, you know, the, the bar would just be reset. A lot of people in property say, well, if everyone bought a below market value, then, the, you know, the, the new below the below market value would be the new average price. Yeah, it would, because that is a supply and demand thing. That's a market, the, the market forces. Um, but, you know, it doesn't matter what you teach and what you do and who you are and what you preach. The reality is, if you think about 80-20 principle, most people won't 
even though everyone can. So not everyone wants to be a millionaire and that's okay. You know, I'm not here preaching about money, knowing more, making more, giving more, investing in yourself, learning how to be not just rich, but wealthy. I'm, I'm not really interested in preaching that to people who aren't interested in making more money. Some people believe that money doesn't bring happiness and they want happiness and they don't want the responsibility of money and they don't want the, you know, all the pain that they perceive money can bring and they don't want to be seen as greedy and they've been raised a different way and they're either content or they don't know that they're not or they're uneducated and that's okay. You know, I, I the people that I'm going to help become millionaires are the people that want to, that desire to, just like the people who want to be a black belt in martial arts. So that question was from... Tony Pramanik, and then the question about can you ever be too rich was from Dahlia Friedman. So keep them coming in. Um, Alex has asked, what's your favorite design of the 50p coin? Whichever design makes it the most rare so you can sell it for more would be my favorite design. Um, Rob Mason, what do you believe are the biggest reasons that the gap between the haves and haves nots is growing the way it is? Well, um, I think that there's a perception in the wider world and in politics and media that there's a bigger gap between the successful and the unsuccessful, the rich and the poor. But, you know, I don't know if there is. Who's got the proof of that? Is that really proven or is that just something that is sort of quite popular to say, a soundbite that people react to? So first off is I'd be careful where you get your information from. And I'd research that. I don't know if the gap is getting bigger between the rich and the poor. I certainly feel that there's more opportunity right now with social media and fiber optics and speed of light and, you know, disruptive currencies. But when you get more opportunity, you, you do get those that take the opportunity and those that get left behind, people that aren't using social media and aren't embracing the changes in the decentralization of money and wealth and control. People who aren't embracing that probably are getting left behind. So when you have a, um, a speeding up of a marketplace or an opportunity or economy, you often get the Darwinian effect where the survival of the fittest, the, the ones who embrace, um, you grow and grow large, and then the ones that don't get left behind evolved out of society, which would have happened thousands of years ago so first check your facts but um you know like if you're on a path to somewhere then a body in motion tends to stay in motion and a body at rest tends to stay at rest so you know when people say oh well it's not fair the world's evil because the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer well i am um, i discussed the rich and poor divide in in this book money in depth in you know what well, it's nearly 500 pages it's this is um this is a different version by the way from the audiobook the audiobook is the unabridged this is a little bit more succinct and uh, concise i basically had an editor in this one um and i researched this a lot and um you know a law of physics is a body in motion tends to stay at motion you know something radical has to happen to get it to stop and the body at rest tends to stay at rest. A lot of energy has to be exerted into it to make it move. And it's the same with being rich and being poor and being successful in the area that you choose and not. By the way, no one is successful and no one is unsuccessful. Everyone is just successful in the endeavours they've pursued and unsuccessful in the endeavours that they've disowned. So it's simple. So you're a success in lots of things you've tried. You might not be wealthy yet or you might not be the black belt you want to be or whatever. But don't ever think you're not a success just because you're not perceived by society as successful or you're not yet successful in the thing you want to be in because you are successful in what you've honoured, mastered, learned and improved in. So if you are pursuing wealth, happiness, success, fulfilment, if you're creating a business and giving value and you're reading 50 books a year on it and you're going to seminars and you're watching my live feeds and listening to my podcast, you are building this energy and momentum that is pushing that body in motion. And that body will tend to, through compounding and leverage and velocity, it will tend to carry on in motion. It will get faster and faster and faster and faster and bigger like the snowball effect. 
if you're not learning anything and doing anything and the prevailing direction of you is spending 120% of what you earn and addictions to gambling and whatever else, then that is the prevailing direction in the other way. And that's building great momentum. So this is really why you, you get this perceived divide. Um, it's harder to change direction than it is to carry on in the direction that you're going. And also the people who are wealthy and successful in every case I've ever studied, and I've studied in the last 11 years, hundreds, I don't know, maybe more, who knows, but I've studied, I love watching autobiographies. I love having great mentors who are very successful and very wealthy. I love uh, reading all their books, watching their podcasts, their live feeds, following them, stalking them, going on their courses, their masterminds. And everyone who's successful, they have created a plan, learned from successful people before them, They've worked out some kind of system. They've worked out what works and doesn't. They've owned and learned the traits of the greats and then they've modelled them. And they've continued on this pursuit, investing their time, energy, enthusiasm, resourcefulness and creativity into it for a very long time. You know, the whole thing about it takes 10 years to be an overnight success. So that's what they've done. And then if you take someone you perceive to be unsuccessful in wealth and business, but they're, you know, like I said, a great musician, for example, then they've done the same. They've been playing music since they were a kid and they've been playing music for 20 years to get their big gigs and playing in dingy pubs in front of five people for a decade before they got their big break. All right. So a million dust. If you had to pick only one, what would you pick, money or love? Well, it's a hypothetical question that's never going to be real because you never pick, you never choose between the two. Why would you? Why can't you have money and love? Uh, money will exaggerate the traits of love. So if you love your family, but then you have money to take them to Necker Island for a retreat to meet Richard Branson to have the whole day of a lifetime, then money fuels and finances love. Because money simply exaggerates our traits and fuels humanity. It fuels who we are and what we already do. Um, if, if it was the binary question, I'm going to play along with the question, I had to choose between money and love and all other things were equal and I could, I could have no money but all love or no love but all money, I'd take love. Of course I would. Um, because, you know, I think our human, human beings, from a survival point of view, need love to survive. And there's a failure to thrive syndrome. If you don't give baby, babies physical touch and love and you just leave them, they die way before they starve of food and oxygen because they, they have this, um, they, we need love. Um, so I'd pick love, but I'm, 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 I'm picking both. All right. I'll have both money and love. All right. Let's have a look at Kat Hallam's question. Uh, Wilson first. How do you tell if your girlfriend is a gold digger? All right. <laughs> Great question. Well, I was fortunate enough that I met my now wife and she met me when I was just starting out and she's grown with me in the journey. So she wanted me for other things other than um, money because I didn't have any. Uh, you know what? I don't know. I'm going to look at both sides of this equation. Um, it's easy to say that um, someone is a gold digger because they like you for your money. But actually, what they probably like is your status. You know, from a survival point of view, men with high status were more likely to survive. And, and money would obviously help you have higher status and you could hire security and protect your woman. So I think that would therefore, um, you know, that's an admirable trait, or at least in a survival instinct from a woman, an admirable trait. So if I am... Um, you know, if someone liked me because I had high status, well, that's that's a trait in me which they like. Um, and, and if that's the most important thing to them, then that's the most important thing to them. Um, as long as that didn't wear thin and wasn't just a, um, you know, gimmick, if you like, or something that they, they sort of liked at first. But then when the reality kicked in, they didn't like me for who I really was. But if I'm wealthy, part of being, being wealthy is part of who I am. So it's very easy just to judge gold diggers in it because they want nice things. But that's not necessarily fair or balanced view 
of what society perceived to be gold diggers. That being said, if someone wants you just for your money and that becomes patently clear and they don't want you for anything else and they're using you, then I think it's wise to you know, distance yourself from those kind of people. But I think you've got to be sure about that. Um, but no, no, you know, like no one's ever really wanted me for my money. Um, so there you go. And when I was single and I weren't getting any and I had sex in a girl, I would have embraced having a bit more money and someone wanting me for my money. Well, hey, that would have been nice. Anyone would have been nice. Anyway, enough about my um, past frustrations. All right. So Kat Hallam has asked, we often hear make money in your 20s, 30s and enjoy from 40s plus. What advice would you give to people interested in obtaining money but are 50 plus or retired? Well, 50 is probably the new 30, isn't it? Because people are 80 is probably I think the average um, life expectancy now is almost 80. And I think only 150 years ago, it was nearly half that. So the life expectancy is really compounding. Remember, a body at rest tends to stay at rest. A body in motion tends to stay in motion. So we are living longer and longer and longer and it's getting faster. And I'm sure the um, life expectancy will be 100 in a couple of generations time. So 50 could be the new 30. So, hey, if you want to start a new vocation in your 50, start a new vocation. You know, you're never too old to start. Um, so, you know, what is it? What is it? The, they say, we say, I say, um, it's never too late to start, but it's always too late to wait. So, hey, start with where you're at. You know, you've probably enjoyed your life up until now. You're 50, you're semi-retired, you've had a great life. You've got a lot of knowledge and experience. You know, so I just don't think age really matters. Colonel Sanders, when he was in his 60s, when he went out on the road for two years sleeping in his car, trying to get his secret recipe for KFC into, you know, various restaurants. Um, there's so many people who became successful later in life. Um, I wasted from 18 to 25 years old and did nothing with it. I can't have that time back. All I can do is look at where I am now. So I would say, don't worry about your age. Age is but a number, as you know. Um, you know, and you never know when you're going to go. You might go tomorrow. You might go in 50 years. You might live till you're 105, in which case 50 will seem young. Um, so I don't really think it matters about what people say and discuss. The good thing about being in your 50s is your kids have probably grown up and left school um, and left home. So, you know, you've got a bit of time. You know, you know yourself a lot better. In my 20s, I was quite confused. I didn't know myself. I was really worried about what people thought about me. Um, my wife and I last night were just saying about how, because Gemma's are going to be 40 next year. And it's like, whoa, that decade just flew by. And uh, my mum always said, you know, her 30s was her best decade because she really discovered who she was and worried less about what people thought about her. And I think that'll exaggerate for me even more in my 40s. But for sure, um, I've sort of had a lot more self-awareness in my 30s than 20s. And whilst I still do care about what people think about me, it's certainly much less of a pain than it used to be in my 20s. And I'm sure in my 40s, it'll get better. My dad's in his 70s and he does not give a f what anyone thinks about him. He does not. And sometimes I really admire people who are in their 60s and 70s because they just do not care what anyone thinks about them. And, you know, like uh, of someone who's probably overly cared what people have thought about me in the past. And that's why I was poor, because I didn't want people perceive, to perceive me as greedy and arrogant when I was rich. Um, you know, but people are going to judge you anyway. So you might as well be rich. If they're going to judge you, then be rich and do great things with your wealth and manage the responsibility well. All right. So Janine looks like you've got a question here. Hi, Janine. Um, my daughter on yachts this summer, the super wealthy had the same emotional family issues as the next person. Exactly. You know, all the super wealthy have mastered is, is money and creating wealth. But we're all individual human beings and we're all having the same struggles and challenges. Every human being has every human trait, unless there's something biologically or chemically, you know, different about you through evolution or through illness or through something like that. You know, DNA, genetic, not flaws, but, you know, you're just different. You know, unless you're sort of made up different, which some people are. 
we all experience the same traits. Guilt, envy, fear, shame, love, admiration, you know, the different types of happiness, the different types of sadness, regret. We all experience all those emotions. So um, wealthy people are simply rich and wealthy because they've mastered that area of their life. Now, well, some people say, oh, well, I know a lot of rich people who aren't happy, but no one's always happy. Everyone has good days and bad days. So it's just a, it's just a, it's a um, projected perception from a poor person chucking out their values onto the world and making it be the world instead of it just being them. So, yeah, you can have really rich, rich people who are very unhealthy, really rich people who've got family issues and problems because, you know, we're all going to go through life having those challenges as we learn to master life. And of course, mastering life is the hardest thing ever. and We will never master it completely. So, yeah, you know, like or if you're going to judge the rich, only judge them on being good at making money because that's what they're good at. But that doesn't mean that all rich people are unhappy or all rich people are greedy or all rich people have family issues or whatever. All it just means is that they've got good at money and they've disowned these parts. And there are some people who are rich and pretty well balanced and have good family um, you know, connections. You'd perceive maybe Tony Robbins or Richard Branson, but then they also have really good PR machines that they can afford that tell the media what the media want to hear. And, and behind the scenes, they may be having problems. So, you know, people are people. All right, so um, D Johnston has asked me, should you give away 10% of your income or save it? Well, if you are living on more than 90% of your earnings, uh, then you should look after yourself first. You know, for example, if you're earning £3,000 a month, but your overheads are £2,995 a month, and you've only got £5 spare, you shouldn't be giving away 10% of your money um, you know, to charity or philanthropic causes. And I'm not saying you shouldn't give your money to charity or philanthropic causes, but charity starts at home. We're all balancing selfish and selfless. And if you're too selfless and giving everything away and you can't sustain your own overhead and pay your own mortgage, you pay your own school fees uh, and pay your own bills, then you'll, be, you'll become bust and then you won't be able to look after people and, and serve charities at all. So once you are living on less than 90% of what you're earning, then you can start giving away some of your uh, money to causes, philanthropy, charities, set up your own philanthropic venture, like I've set up my own foundation. Um, and you should target giving away 10% of your earnings. Um, but probably you should give away 10% of your earnings when you're only spending 70 or 60% of your earnings and you've got that right down because if you follow my money bucketing system in money you've got you know your overheads but then you've got your savings pot your investing pot your speculation pot you know you might have your insuring and the, the diversification and growing of your wealth you might have your bucket list of the things you want to do just to enjoy yourself and you know spend on yourself to further the fun in your life so you might have between five and seven buckets one of those will be your philanthropic ventures and charities, and that might be 10%. But if all the others are 10%, you need to be spending 50% um, or less of what you earn. And one of the fundamental rules of money, which is not taught in schools, which is the fundamental basic law of money, uh, is never spend more than you earn. Okay, so are you involved in any network marketing businesses? No. Um, as I know, you have multiple streams of income. Yeah, I mean, the millionaire, the average millionaire has three or more income streams. Uh, and um, I have maybe nine income streams. Uh, and I believe in multiple streams of income, but there are systems to build it. And I go through in money the detailed ways in which to build multiple streams of income. Because if you want nine streams of income, you can't set them all up today. Otherwise, you're overwhelmed. You're spinning too many plates 
and you end up achieving, uh, you know, nothing in all of them. You know, if you've got nine oil wells and you drill one ninth of the way down in each of the nine oil wells, you don't, you don't strike oil. You have to go all the way down to strike oil in one. But then if you go all the way down to strike oil in one and then that oil well dries up, then you have no income stream. And that could be a regulatory change, a disruption, like if you're a taxi driver or if you're a hotel, then Uber and Airbnb have completely disrupted your only oil well. What are you going to do? Well, then you have to start another oil well. But if you're not all sort of part the way down that oil well already, you've got to start again. So balancing income streams is about having your 70, your 20, your 10, your main one, your second one, your tertiary one. And then you're sort of um, maybe 10% of your time on the future strategies and, you know, your research and looking to innovate and maybe your risk, more risky strategies where you're only risking a, a small amount of your income. So this is how you balance um, multiple streams of income. You don't just try and do nine at once, but you don't just have one because of the risk of disruption. You know, ask Kodak, who designed the digital photography, you know, the digital camera, digital photography, they designed it and they went bust. And everyone else is using digital photography now, digital video, where are they? They designed it. Um, so you can definitely get um, disrupted if you only have one source of income. But then look at Coca-Cola, who we used to, Coca-Cola was medicinal. And then they pivoted into, you know, making it uh, more for taste and enjoyment. All right. Now, the reason I'm not in network marketing is because I was in network marketing once, and this was 2006. And um, the problem with network marketing, hey, look, you know, there's good and bad in everything. Um, and, and network marketing in many ways has got a bad press. The, the problem I had with network marketing is I am promoting something that someone else has created. And if they change the rules, I'm done. If they go bust, I'm done. I've got my friends, my family and begged everyone to get into it. But as soon as they change how the payment structure works, the rules or, or, or maybe a, a regulatory body changes the rules or it's perceived that they're not a network marketing system, but a Ponzi scheme because some of them are similar, then you're done. And it's a bit like, I suppose, having a job and then getting fired or made redundant. I wanted to be in control of my destiny. And sometimes that means if I fail, it's on me. But if I succeed, it's on me. And I've got the ability to pivot, to change the rules, to make the rules, to, you know, to be creative, resourceful, to move through the sort of changing landscape and the minefield of business. So that's why I don't like being in market, network marketing myself is because I can't control the outcome someone else is. And I don't want to be, I don't want to be out of control in that regard. Um, so no, I'm not in network marketing, but thank you for the question. If you're going to do it, make sure that you follow a really good proven company, you know, who've been doing it for decades, who've got a really good product. Because the more ethereal and tangible the product, the more it looks or is perceived to be a Ponzi scheme. But if it's a really tangible, clear product that really helps people, and you know, there are some very good big network marketing businesses, then you know, that then you might consider doing it if you're considering it. I'm not advising it. I'm certainly not saying it's, it's completely wrong either. Also, network marketing, um, this is good and bad, but it, you'll probably get more rejection in network marketing than you would standing in the middle of the high street and asking random people out on a date. Um, and in one way, that's bad because that's attritional and that might hurt your self-worth. In one way, that's good to do because if you keep, you know, practicing rejection, you get better at taking rejection, then you're not bothered about it. So it depends which way you want to look at it, but it's a heck of a lot of work. But also on the, on the other side of it, it's... Um, you know, you're doing all of this work and normally in network marketing, the people at the top, you know, they're the ones that earn a lot of the money and the later entrants, they're the ones that earn the least amount of money. You've got to want to do it and you've got to commit to learning about wealth and money. You've got to commit to reading the money books, listening to the money podcasts, implementing and actioning and testing some of the strategies, continual learning of it, going to courses, investing in your knowledge and in yourself. You know, the balance of committing, are you wanting to do it 
and then continually learning and upskilling yourself. Because I can't help anyone be wealthy who doesn't want to be wealthy or is not prepared um, to commit to learning how to be wealthy. Because wealth, riches, making money, it is a system. Like getting a black belt is a system in, in any martial art. You know, you follow a process, a syllabus. You spar, you learn, you know, and, and, and over time you get better and better and go up the gradings. Um, and then what was once hard becomes easy. I remember um, when I was a kid at school doing PE, I always used to forget my kit, which was really annoying because back then it was so cruel. They used to just wait, you do your um, class just in your wife fronts. So that was cruelty to children, especially as I was overweight. Um, and I remember my teacher at the time, you know, used to have to try and t do the warm up. And do you remember in the warm up, you used to bounce to touch your toes, which they say is really bad now. And I could touch my knees. I couldn't even get to my toes. And I remember my teacher at the time saying, don't worry more, you're never going to touch your toes. And I, I, I took on that belief. Um, and then for years, I always thought I was inflexible and overweight and I'd never be lean and I'd never be flexible. And then I um, started martial arts. And I told my martial arts instructor this and he said, that is a myth. That's a complete lie. You've taken on his belief um, and made it your reality. But it's not the reality because I've taught hundreds of people to become black belts who couldn't even touch their knees either. And he says, all you do is you stretch day by day by day by day. Um, you, you, you don't push yourself too hard, but you just try and get slightly lower, slightly lower, slightly lower, slightly lower, slightly lower. Um, and, and then you just hold that position and then that becomes the new norm. And so it is with business and investing and money is you learn, you learn, you learn, you test, you tweak, you implement. And what once was hard is easier and then easy and then normal and then habit. Um, so that's one of the things that you need to commit to do. Um, now, by the way, it's easy to commit to do that, just like it's easy to commit not to do that. It's easy to commit to learning about money and business and investing and finance um, and service and value and creating and innovating and being resourceful. It's just as easy to commit to that as it is to commit to procrastinating or wasting your time or getting spread really thin. You know, I think it was, um, it might have been Dan um, Hardy in The Compound Effect. Uh, but there's some great books on it's easy to do and it's easy not to do. And most of these people are referencing Jim Rohn and Zig Ziglar, some of the forefathers of personal development. It's easy to do. It's easy not to do. It's just as easy to eat an unhealthy pizza as it is to eat a healthy salad. And we make things seem and sound and feel a lot harder than they really are. All right. So the next question is, how can you make it fun? Earning money, saving, etc. Well, I think it is fun. This is from A.B. Bull, by the way. You know, I think it is fun. I loved writing money. I loved doing, you know, not, okay, let me, let me put it into context. Writing a book is the second hardest thing you'll do. First hardest is raising kids, in my opinion and experience. Business and money and everything else that you struggle with, I think is easy compared to having kids and then writing a book. So this took me nine full months and five of my own edits and then about another 10 edits from my editing team and backing on four thing. And it, but it was a 10-year research project of being £50,000 in consumer debt and go, doing the traditional route of going to university and trying to get a job and not getting a job and building up a lot of debt. It's funny how some people say um, sort of, you know, courses and education, self-education is a scam when surely a bigger scam is going to university and getting a degree and then not being able to get a job and then working for 10 years and keeping yourself in debt for the rest of your life. Surely that's the biggest scam. Um, so, you know... For me, it was, it's just a fun process. How is it not fun to learn how to make money, to, to, to learn about saving investment and managing your money, compounding your money, gaining momentum and increased velocity of money, increasing your personal economy so that everywhere you go, money moves faster around you, that you make and you save, but also that you give and you share. The more wealthy you are, the more better tips you get, the better travel. You have a driver, you have a pilot. 
you know, you go everywhere and you're throwing money around because you can afford it because you're wealthy. And that's not just, um, you know, opulent, gratuitous wastage of money. That is an increased velocity of money. And so as you get more wealthy, it's not just about saving and hoarding. It's about the speed of money around you uh, getting faster and making everyone around you more wealthy. You can't make people around you wealthy when you're poor. You know, you can only make people around you wealthy by gifts um, I, I watched the George Michael documentary yesterday, which was fascinating and moving. You know, what a guy. And because he was wealthy and successful, he was able to do random donations. And he actually um, randomly helped a, a couple who were struggling to have a baby. And, and I, they would guess they were trying all the IVF and all that stuff and really struggling. And he just gave them a random load of money so that they could you know, pay for um, and having a baby. They had a baby. I mean, what greater gift than that? It gave me goosebumps just thinking about it. I was almost in tears watching it. What an amazing guy. Uh, and they only found out about that when a few, I don't know, um, just I think as they were having the, their baby, he sent them a little message and they worked out it was George Michael and they called the baby George. I mean, that's just amazing. Uh, and, and that is the gift that wealth brings. Because if he was skinny, he wouldn't have been able to do that. Um, and I think we often forget that. So, um, um, Amy, I kind of think it is fun. How do you make it more fun? Well, link it to your vision, link it to your values, link making money to the success and the happiness that you want, you know, make them entwined. Also, teach your kids through games, make it more of a game, you know, like counting, keeping score, have competitions, bets, um, rewards, you know, micro rewards rather than just massive rewards. All right. So the second point uh, that I believe I can make you rich. Uh, the first point is that you need to commit to learning uh, and to developing your skills uh, and then the second thing is taking consistent action, i.e. you implement something, you learn, it works or it doesn't, you test and you tweak and then you repeat, you test, you tweak, repeat, you test, you tweak, repeat, you test, you tweak, you repeat. Um, and, you know, whilst there's a lot in between learning and doing, um, if you have the desire to do both, then um, you will progressively gain more wealth, more compounding, more momentum Everything that's initially outgoing will become in. Everything that you push will then become a, a pull, like a magnet. You know, you have, you have to work hard enough, but then you don't have to work hard. Your active income will turn into passive income. That will compound. Um, and then in between that gap is creating a meaningful product that your market wants and then serving them and caring about them and then innovating and iterating that product so it gets better and better and better and better and better and better. Um, uh, and, and, and I believe then you follow that system and you will be rich. And, and I think if you grab this book, Money, then um, you've got a very good chance of becoming wealthy. <laughs> Caveat, not you can't just get it. You've got to read it. Be humble to learning about it. Go and learn from all my other mentors and the masters and own the traits of the greats that I refer to in this book. So read all of their books, like the Book of Wealth and all the other reference points I've got in this book. So reading this book will give you at least another 20 or 30 money books. And then you've got a, a great foundation there. And then you implement, you test, you tweak, you repeat, you scale. Right. So remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. Remember that you can be rich if you commit to learning about it and then testing it and taking continued action. Um, and I think this book's going to change the world. And all the profits are going to my new foundation. Every single um, penny or pound that I make personally out of the book will go to this foundation. Um, you know, my goal is with this to finance my um, foundation with one million pounds to get it started. I'm not going to commit yet where I'm going to invest the money or how I'm going to help education. But that is what I'm going to do in the third world and for young entrepreneurs, especially. 
Um, but I want to raise through the sales of this one million pounds um, so I can build this uh, philanthropic cause. Most of the billionaires who have been the biggest billionaires in, in the world ever over history, they did exactly the same. Most universities, libraries and hospitals that you know famously were set up by billionaire capitalist philanthropists. So I'm modelling the traits of the greats myself. Um, and hey, you can help me do that. So thanks for tuning in. Uh, go get your book right now. And if you've got any questions, comments, any way I can help you at all, post it in the thread or in the Disruptive Entrepreneurs community and we'll keep the dialogue going. Have a great day.